Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. These guys are pretty interesting, though. They've actually figured out the laws that dictate everything. History, sociology, politics, morality, everything. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, toss up Huck Finn, Heinrich Himmler, or Jonathan Edwards. Who's the most despicable? <laughs> you know, at the risk of being accused of, I'm David Bizarre from Cornell University, of, of, of anti-Semitism. Jonathan Edwards, man. I mean, Himmler, so, okay. Himmler is despicable. Like there's a there's a floor effect, as we say in the empirical sciences, a floor effect here, where every, you know Himmler is is as low as you can get. Except for J- J- Jonathan Edwards, if you read like his sermons, I mean this guy, as Bennett says in the article that we will discuss after this segment, um, the conscience of Huckleberry Finn. As Jonathan Bennett says, Edwards had what he was saying essentially was worse than Himmler in that he believes in the eternal suffering and torment of people. And if you really believe that, if you fundamentally believe in eternal torturing, that you're okay with that, then you're just a fuckwad, you know? Eternity is a long time, as the mathematics of Cantor would have told us, right? It's like... <laughs> yes, they would have. Although I have a paper coming out that sort of challenges that. The conclusion that infinity is a long time. You have a mathematics paper? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a proof that shows that it's just a moderate amount of time. <laughs> so Bennett certainly takes the side that Himmler was like practically a saint compared to <laughs> the Protestant congregationalist philosopher Jonathan Edwards. I, I, know, I noticed that Bennett is not a Jewish name. Um, so unless his mother was like Goldstein or something, then yeah. then we we might want to read into this. All right, but first let's talk about a an article or in the Washington Post showing that only <laughs> purporting to show or yeah, well, right, you know, demonstrating. You what do you psychologists say? I, purporting, purporting to show, <laughs> claiming. How about this? Suggests Claims. that only ten percent of Native Americans are offended by the term redskin. And this poll was done because there's been a lot of controversy, most of it recent, on the Washington Redskins team name. That's their, that's their name, the, the Washington Redskins. And some people have been saying it's a slur. Uh, people have been saying this for a while, but in the last few years, networks certain networks and certain reporters and certain journalists won't call them the Washington Redskins. They'll call them the Washington football team or the Washington team or whatever, the team from Washington. So the owner, Daniel Snyder, not one of our best representatives, frankly, is been stubbornly refusing to change the name. And this new poll... At least on some interpretations. Celebrated by team owner Daniel Snyder. Celebrated, but not commissioned by team owner Daniel Snyder. But this new poll might show that this is mostly white people who are projecting offense onto Native Americans rather than Native Americans actually finding the term offensive. (laughs) So, no, because this was just a poll of Native Americans. So... No, no, so no, but the fact was... is that, like, there's been a ton of outrage about this. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but but this poll did not show that it's white people because there were no white people. Supposedly, there were no white people. Who well, took the poll. so this yeah. what all this poll showed was that of the 500 people who claimed to be Native American, 90 percent said it doesn't bother them to have the Native American this, to have the Washington Redskins have that name. Right. In fact, only 20 percent of people thought it was in any way disrespectful. Uh, right. So 20% of Native Americans polled think that the name is disrespectful. Yeah. But weirdly, only 10% of those are bothered by the Washington Redskins name. Well, right. I mean, I, I think disrespectful is a notch below offensive, although, you know, that's more your domain conceptual analysis. But, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because this has been a fairly recent phenomenon outrage against the team name it does seem like it's been driven largely by people who aren't native american not exclusively by any means but largely and maybe as a form of moral posturing so i i think so first of all i was afraid to talk about this because it's going to get into an argument about i don't think but so, I, I don't have I, a very I, strong I, opinion either way well I, but i i do think that attributing posturing to people who are white and happen to be against it is is something that Muslim. you have no evidence for right so i believe that some people are posturing but i don't That's believe that by dint by so, dint of pink no you said mostly by white people who are probably posturing. no i said some of whom are probably posturing. <laughs> uh, okay well so but but we don't know right we don't we, there's, we don't, it could be we that there's not a is... single person who is doing a very common thing, which is signaling that. I mean, they could be signaling too, but that, it, but that doesn't mean that that's their reason for for objecting, right? <clears throat> it could be that they actually, for instance, think that those twenty percent of people who find it disrespectful are are a group to be listened to, or the ten percent <laughs> who find it offensive. So, I mean, here's the here's an interesting philosophical question. I heard about this originally on the on a really good podcast, the 538 Elections podcast. They were more willing than you to sort of grant that some of the outrage is not driven by the people that are supposedly um, the victims of the the name, but rather from people who... I, no, wait. I, I can grant that. I'm just saying that this poll doesn't show that. Okay, that's fine. I didn't say the poll yeah. showed it. Claire Malone, who is um, one of the people on the podcast, said, but, you know, whatever, it's only 10 percent of Native Americans. That doesn't mean that I can't think that it's offensive. I still think it's offensive. I still think it's an offensive name and I think they should change it. And, right. I, you know, I, I get that. Certainly it's a reasonable perspective. I, I, and, and I don't actually suspect her at all of moral posturing. She's not she doesn't seem like that kind of person. I wonder, though, what the basis for that is to say I still I'm offended by it, even if be OK well, if it was 100 percent of Native Americans or. Oh, wait, there is an interesting sort of semantic question there, whether or not <clears throat> by saying that she thinks it's offensive, she's saying that she is offended. So what she could be saying is that she thinks that right. that it is a name that is offensive to to um, Native Americans. But then doesn't and, the poll sort of suggest that that's not true for nine out of ten of them? Well, so it, it could, it, but the the question, I think, there's an interesting question here, which is, is does it matter how, like, what percentage is it appropriately categorized as offensive? And if, if 100 people or 50 people polled find it really offensive... Or they think it's a slur. Does it matter? I don't know. I and I. So we're we're sidestepping one thing that I at least want to mention, which is the Washington Post is notoriously conservative. They sampled five hundred. No, they're people not. They're not notorious. Yeah, they're they they're a liberal paper. I mean, they're not as liberal as the New York Times, but they're not like the Washington Times. I could be wrong, but this. this but also, yeah. you know, Nate Silver, this give, like they they vouched for the the methods of this poll and the accuracy of, or you know, like as far as polls go, they act, you know, they said as polls go, um, this their methodology was was very sound. Yeah, so there were five hundred people who who self identified as Native American as part of a larger poll yeah. that were called on the telephone, either cell phone or or TV. I don't have any good reason. 
given the methodology that they report to doubt this. I just am I'm a little I'm I, I'm a little suspicious as as you ought to be like given your immediate suspicion of anything social psychology um, that that there that I would want to see a better a, a better sampling of Native Americans across the country. Um, I mean, that's fine, but there's been a lot of people like you who are using motivated reasoning to like if, if it came back as six <laughs> out of 10 Native Americans are offended by the term. I don't think there would have been that much questioning of the methodology. But what they said, because uh, they talked about this on two different podcasts and the second one, they were responding to some of the people expressing concerns like like you're expressing. And they're like, look, I mean. You know, we see a lot of polls and we look at their methodology. That's our job. And they have no skin in the game, no pun intended, one way or the other. And this is a good poll. First of all, you can't just accuse me of motivated reasoning here. So, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't care. know that like, I'd I, be happy I, for I think, them to change their name. No, no, but I think that if it were in something that you disagreed with, you would probably. But I don't. You would prob- I don't have an opinion on this, so it's not. Motiv- I'm not motivated either way. You're more. Let's just say you're more open to 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 the argument, right? You, I, I think that that I think that you're right in that when you disagree with something, you tend to look more at the methodology. I don't know if that's true for you, but I am. I never look at the methodology. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just generally true. You're just not motivated at all. But you know, one of the things Nate Silver does is he takes he realizes that any given poll is pretty shitty as far as as far as what we know, and that's why he combines the results of many different polls in order to get accuracy. So all I'm saying is that we should at least separate the possibility that the numbers aren't representative from the question of what if we take it on face value that it really is only 10 percent of people disagree with the name and 20 percent feel disrespected if that matters that much. Right. So that's the more interesting question, because like we don't know, like you're right, you can always get better polling. And but let's just assume that this was uh, this, you know, they they keep doing these things and these numbers are pretty solid. But what do you mean they keep doing these, these keep things? doing this these is polls. the one and only. No, this is the one and only Native American. I poll understand. But let's lengths. just assume you can imagine you can imagine another possible world. Right. Where the where this Calm these down. numbers were solid. Like, I don't know why you're being no, so no, difficult no. about this. I'm not being difficult. You say they keep doing these polls. They go to. Great I said, let's imagine that would like no, that's a did it. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. You said they keep no, doing I these didn't. polls. No, I didn't. I said let's imagine they keep doing these polls and the number All is right. solid. What then? If you said let's if you said let's imagine, then I apologize. Um, but you didn't. So uh, I mean, we can play let's, it back. Im- let's back. let's imagine the numbers are solid. And yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it says. Right. I. And in fact, in the Washington Post article, they link to. Um, a previous article called A Brief History of the Word Redskin and How It Became a Source of Controversy. And I I don't think that there's any controversy about the word itself being used as a pejorative. In fact, they track it down to like its first use as a pejorative in the the mid-1800s. And so so whether or not the word is was intended to be used as a pejorative, I don't think is at question here. So no, but it could be, you know, like some words get uh what's the word they get reclaimed by the by the people i don't think that's right. the case here actually but you know like queer or slut right right and <laughs> it's really the slut i, I don't know you by hear it. some people say that they're like slut walks and stuff like that you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean right I, as you say i don't think it's the case here i mean i don't think native americans are using it to yeah. to refer to each other in that Yo, you my red skin. <laughs> That's our word. You know, so given its history as a pejorative, I think that there is a question there as to whether – I mean, one of the things that gets me about these debates is it's pretty low-hanging fruit. Like, I, I tend to think, like, what, why not change the name? We changed the Washington Bullets to the Wizards. I mean, worst name change ever. That was stupid. But I don't know how many people were offended by it. But the thought that it could be just a bad thing to have because some – even a few people feeling like it's really inappropriate, like somebody who's, whose kid died from a shooting in Washington might feel bad every time they see the Washington Bullets name. I feel like if, if like some people feel really shitty when they see the word Redskins, even if they're being 
you know, sensitive about it. I don't I don't understand why why there's so much desire to keep the name. Well, right? like there's a lot the at stake, side? right? There's a, there's the logo. And you know, it's funny because you look at the <laughs> Cleveland Indian logo and that, like if anything is yeah. offensive, like it's just a weird thing to choose the Redskins because like the Cleveland Indian logo is ridiculous and then yeah. you know, you have the Braves doing the tomahawk chop at the I mean, I feel like all of yeah. that stuff is in poor taste, but, right? I, but, I mean, is 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 it really that much at stake to change the logo? Like, it's I mean, just money. I don't know. It's money and it's tradition. This is what they'll say. And again, I'm not a Redskin fan. I didn't grow up as a Redskin. But, you know, the Redskins are an old team with a lot of history. And changing a name of a team is a big deal. You certainly would want there to be good reason to change it rather than just all of a sudden a bunch of white people decided that was going to be their cause for the for the month well that's what i'm that's what i don't think is happening right so i think that there are plenty of native american activists who feel pretty strongly about it and and whether like if they're the leaders in the native american community and and even if uh, uh, i don't i don't know i mean if it really is if it has a history of being a slur I just feel like if there's a, some Native American kid who just feels like shit every time he sees people doing the fucking tomahawk thing or looking at the Redskins, then it strikes me as like a, a you know, I'm sure if there were a team named the New York Negroes, it would have been changed in the 60s when people started getting offended by the term Negro. Just take the opportunity to rebrand and, and teams do it all the time. It strikes me like for trivial reasons. Um, and I think this is just sort of... Um, digging your heels in for for not that good a reason. So I mean I I, I see that side and uh, have no objection. I have no real firm objection to it. I would say two things, a couple things. Part of the problem with a lot of the moral posturing stuff, you know, like cultural appropriation, you know, at Oberlin with yeah, is that it diverts attention from real problems, right? I I, I totally agree. And, I mean, and and in this case. I think some of the people are saying, hey, at least we're getting some attention. There was a quote here to that effect. Normally people don't even think about us or what we're struggling with and what we're going through. And, and, you know, we have actual real problems. This is not one of them. This is the kind of problem that somebody might imagine that we have. But actually, we're, you know, there's, there's a lot of poverty. There's problems in the education system. There's probably, you know, we're, we're suffering in real ways. And this isn't one of them. But the worry, I guess, is you change the name and you're like, all right, that's good. I did my duty to Native Americans whose land we stole 300 years ago. I changed the name. Now I can, I don't have to yeah. think about that anymore. So that's the other issue with these things, I guess. I, I agree. I, I think that it's, if you change the name and, and then feel as if you actually did something, then the, you know, I, I have the same exact problem with that kind of, that kind of posturing. Um, and I think that it could happen that way. I think in, in this case, what I, what what I would say, maybe, maybe to take a consequentialist stance on it, is to the extent that Native Americans want to use this to rally around, because so many people care so deeply about football and they they not don't pay attention to Native American issues, then like go ahead and use this to to bring attention to some of the real problems with the all all of the shit that's going on. But we can't stop it. You're, I mean, you're right. You're totally right. Can't. This is this would be a. a not a, a real victory right we yeah. there's so many problems on reservations i have a really great native american student who who um was in my psych 101 class and he has just like taught me a whole lot about native americans but among the things is just like the endemic problems to the it's like we really, we, I say we, but whatever is well, American, we, we shit on, yeah, <laughs> so fucking badly. It's awful. This is what, that's why sometimes I'm like, ah, just give them the name. <laughs> um, I think one of the things I'm going to recommend is this book by Sebastian Junger, you know, the author, or Younger, the author of The Perfect Storm. He just came out with a book called Tribe. One of the just interesting pieces of history that he goes into in that book is that in the 16th century, 16th, 17th century, 
there was a big problem with Americans, you know, in these Puritan villages and their um, communities, and they're just leaving to join the Indian tribes. And that was like (laughs) an epidemic because the communal life was so appealing. And this was even true for the for some percentage of the people who were kidnapped by by the tribes. I don't know. I thought that was sort of interesting. This there is something appealing about the the collectivist sort of life, the yeah. the happiness that it brings. We you're, should do an episode on that. That's yeah. That's why your people have kibbutzim. No, right, exactly. People on kibbutz have uh, much lower PTSD than people not on kibbutzim and oh, that makes a lot in of sense. general yeah. Israelis have much lower PTSD than Americans because it's still a much smaller, more communal society which is pretty fucking incredible given how much more they have to deal with (laughs) exactly but part of the issue is that everybody does it so that's got to be like psychologically healthy to know that you're not the only person who sacrificed for your country you know right right i think that that was so much of the problem with vietnam vets coming back yeah um and the lack of social support that they got All right, cool. let's uh, come back and talk about this paper. It's a classic paper, part of our classic paper series, The Conscious of Huckleberry Finn. Me gustas cuando callas porque estás como ausente. Y me oyes desde lejos y mi voz no te alcanza. Si hubieras muerto una palabra entonces una sonrisa bastan Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. I uh, would like to just take a quick moment to thank everybody for all of their support, um, the forums of communication, the forums of actual tangible financial support. We uh, have a Patreon account that we set up and thank you to all those who have signed up. We're, I think, at, at 90 Patreon donors. Um, well, we're recording this very early. We're recording, yeah, recording it early. <laughs> this, this will be released like a couple of weeks after we record. You can go support us there at patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can go to verybadwizards.com slash support to see the other ways in which you support. You can support us if you'd like um, via Amazon or PayPal. Just rating us on iTunes that we... First of all, we love the the reviews, and um, and I think that's a way that to have our podcast pop up on iTunes so more people can see it. You can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com or tweet us um, at verybadwizards, at Tamler, or at Peas. And again, we thank everybody for all of the support. We really, really makes a difference, I think, for for us, our motivation. We've been doing this for almost four years. I've, in August, I guess, will be four years. We got some great feedback from the ProPublica episode yeah that was really i'm just imagining we haven't even released that episode yet but, yeah but i but i trust our <laughs> listeners i like how at first you were like oh yeah no yeah was i such was like wait feedback. wait a second all right so thank you thank you yes we really appreciate it we appreciate all the support and the, the feedback so this is where this is part of our classic paper series which I don't think we've ever called it that before, but it's a classic philosophy paper called The Conscious of Huckleberry Finn by Jonathan Bennett. Um, it's from 1974. It's in a lot of 
philosophy anthologies, introduction to ethics, and almost all introduction to ethics anthologies. It's in a sort of oblique way about conflicts between reason and emotion, which have become a lot more more fashionable since this paper was was written. It's a really clear easy paper to read I, I i still like the paper i had more problems with it reading it again than i have in the past but yeah i i had the same exact feeling and we, we can get to why but so here's the way that it breaks down and we'll have we will have posted this on our website or on facebook um and and sent it out on on twitter it's kind of an introduction to this long running debate over what should be our primary sort of what should rule our behavior uh, emotions or reasoned principles jonathan bennett in exploring this question sets up two cases where what he calls sympathy I think what would we would now call empathy conflicts with moral principles, our morality. And in, in both cases, it's bad morality. So in the case of Huck Finn, his morality tells him, his, his beliefs, his moral beliefs tell him he ought to turn Jim in, that he's doing the wrong thing by helping the slave Jim escape from his master. And even worse, he's tacitly encouraging him to try to break out his Jim's wife and free her as well. And he thinks he's really doing the wrong thing, but his just natural sympathy, friendship with Jim wins the day and allows him to overcome what he thinks the the actual moral choice is. So that's a case where sympathy or empathy conquers bad morality. And then the second case is Heinrich Himmler, who was very concerned throughout as this is one of the more interesting parts of the paper that like it documents that Himmler was really he thought the right thing to do we have to exterminate all the Jews and the gypsies and the Russians it's just the right thing to do we have to cleanse and but it's going to be hard on people you know and especially with the extermination of the Jews it would be almost heroic to be able to come through that and still be a good person because your emotions are going to be telling you what I'm doing is wrong, even though we know that that's right. something that needs to occur for um, for humanity to prosper or for the German people to prosper. And And this was like a psychic conflict for him throughout his life. But in his case, he was able to have his morality defeat his empathy or his emotions at sort of knowingly great toll on his emotional well-being right right sort of sort of like you know i know this is gonna fuck people up emotionally but like we have to power through this right it's like we have to you know it, it, it it's 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 set up as kind of this almost heroic feat of we're punishing ourselves here to do the right thing right and notable for the sake of the paper um bennett goes goes to some length to to argue that in fact Himmler did seem to genuinely have sympathy um and be pretty fucked up about what he was doing right it's not it's not as if he was just saying hey, it's going to be hard but was a psychopath he said um, it is the curse of greatness that it must step over dead bodies to create new life yet we must cleanse the soil or it will never bear fruit it will be a great burden for me to bear yeah as you said he he suffered from many nervous breakdowns and psychic issues. And we don't know for sure if that's because he felt, you know, so much empathy for, but... um, Right, there's a little poetic license that maybe we're, but but for the sake of the argument, um, it's, yeah. Yeah. Let's imagine. Let's imagine. If that's okay to say. (laughs) (laughs) If we're allowed to do that. As long as you don't claim that it was shown. (laughs) Um. So the, the final person... Who had a bad morality, and that's Jonathan Edwards, who has that kind of Calvinist, Lutheran thing where they're, they're hardcore compatibilists, like extreme compat- ex-compatibilists. They, right. People are born through no fault of their own, made by God 
to be a sinner and then you deserve all the fiery eternal torment that you get in hell and that the saints, Jonathan Edwards said, will look and rejoice at their suffering. So, so what Bennett says about Edwards is, I don't even think he felt that this was bad. Like, right, this is right. like, he's like some person that revels in the suffering of other people. So he, he has bad morality and unlike Himmler and, and, and Huck Finn, he doesn't have that emotion to that emotional conflict with his bad morality. Right. This was in 1974. So as you pointed out before, it got all cool to talk about emotion and reason yeah. in, in the empirical literature. But, um, it is it is strikingly similar to arguments about hierarchical will or the true self, <clears throat> where you know you're talking about the conflict between um, first order desires and second order desires, and so it's like he had weakness of uh, like Huck had weakness of will. Yeah, and he never but, says it that way, but yeah, yeah. it's like Ecratic. It's Ecrasia yeah. that Huck Finn can't can't you know Huck Finn has failed because he he has failed to live up to his principles. So, um, so what Bennett's conclusion, just to wrap this up, is yeah. that moral principles are good to have. Here's the one part that Paul Bloom might agree with. Moral principles are good to have because our sympathy sometimes sort of checks out. And so right. moral principles are good. But these principles, to know that they're good principles, need to be checked by our emotions and our sympathy so that we know that they're on firm ground. So the way I read his conclusion anyway is that ultimately our empathy is, at, at the very least, has veto power over our principles and and will shape our principles. And if we come up with something, if we think we reason our way towards something that seems so awful then we need to discard it because um, because it does conflict too violently with our emotions. So in a way, our emotions are primary, although I don't know if you have to read it like that. And, you know, I was thinking, uh, since you're such a staunch adherent to universal moral principles and categorical imperatives that we derive from pure reason— um, how do you see the <laughs> there's there's a lot interesting here i so i realized you know the first paper that i ever wrote was about a lot of this stuff and um but i'll i'll say why i still i still hold a, an important difference between the way bennett talks about it and this what intrigues me is that bennett leaves a lot sort of unfleshed out about as you were talking about the, the sympathy and the empathy and the emotions and what it is, what it is that they're exactly doing. I, I agree that his conclusion is like what you say. So if I can quote, um, this is from uh, page eight of the article, it can happen that a certain moral principle becomes untenable, meaning literally that one cannot hold it any longer because it conflicts intolerably with the pity or revulsion or whatever that one feels when one sees what the principle leads to. So, so he is saying, I think what you said, he says, which is that, Look, if a moral principle is fucking with your emotional system so badly, then maybe it's a bad moral principle. <clears throat> I don't know on what grounds he says that because as if we go back and we go through his arguments, which I think we're about to do, um, we can – I think that he's, he's underdefined what these sympathetic emotions are. He, he makes them sound fairly dumb to begin with. Um, dumb is in at least completely non-cognitive. But then why should we listen to them? Well, because he stacked the deck a little by his examples. But in the case of both Huck Finn and Himmler, and even in, you know, even though he didn't have the emotions, we might, like, our emotions are right in these cases. And the morality is wrong. You know, unless you believe that you can derive a morality from pure reason, as I attributed to you, joking. <laughs> But I sometimes wonder if it's a joke. Ultimately, that's as dumb as they are. They're they're all we have. Well, so so that that leaves you with a, a quandary. I'll defend myself and why I'm not the that content that you think I am. Um, but um, but that does leave us with a problem, which is how can we tell which of the emotions should be listened to and which of them should be squashed? Because presumably there are a lot of emotional reactions we have that. Um, that might be telling us not not 
to follow a principle. Yeah. And and how do how does one distinguish between the ones that will lead us astray and the ones that that will actually motivate and us? And he to, admits that we don't know when our morality is a good morality or a bad morality. Right. And it's not the point of the paper, right? But one does wonder it's sort of like, well, in the in the cases in which he describes, it just turns out that Huck Finn should have given what we believe now. Like it's a good thing to free slaves. Yeah. Um, but part of me wants to say, in the absence of any information as to the sort of the the, but let's strip the Huck Finn story of what he's actually doing and just describe his conflict. What he knows to be right, if we take Bennett at, at his description, he knows something to be right and is acting against it. Um, there's a consequentialist way where I can say, well, whatever whatever had the best results is the best thing to do. But there is also a way in which I, ju- I, I feel like judging Huck Finn and saying, yeah, he, he did wrong. Oh, my God. Right? No, wait. Let, <clears throat> let's also talk about where his morality comes from, where a lot of our morality comes from. Tradition, blind, like self-interest, motivated reasoning, like... Yeah, that's why I'm saying so... Like, so there's right. no re- I mean, his 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 emotions might be dumb, but his morality is dumber, right? I mean, he but we just, know that, right? Just, we know, yeah, we know that. So I'm that's what I'm saying. Strip it of the content, right? We think his morality was dumb because it turns out that owning slaves is wrong, but Huck Finn is believing that he is failing. No, no, but his more. If you look at why he believes what he believes, he's learned it from his dad, who's a terrible guy. He's learned it from just his the wider culture, and you know, of but, course, that's going to be true for us too, for a lot of our moral beliefs. Right, but but what I'm trying to do is strip it of its content, strip like the example of its content for now. And if you just have the description of somebody who fundamentally believes something is wrong. And nonetheless acts against that. Yeah. That, right? So we say if, right. if he believed slavery was was wrong, um, you know, there's like, there's no, I see what, that you want to ground, like the, you can say that like, well, the beliefs themselves are just as arbitrary as the emotions, but, 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 right. um, but that, but that doesn't get us anywhere, right? Then then it's all then it really kind of doesn't matter, right? If they're if they're all spurious, if they're all just completely no, no, like, no. like I think some are better than the others, and there's going to be some cases you could do a Huck Finn case the other way, right? Where and and Bennett doesn't, but you could you could come up with a case where your emotions would contradict your your reasoning and you know this is what paul bloom gives tons of examples of this right like moving the little girl that you know up up the organ donor list just because you know her name and you and and you know a little bit of her backstory or something like that so so you can do both and most people aren't as unthinking in either their morality or their their emotions as Huck is in this example. I would say most people are probably a little bit more like Himmler in the sense that but again, even in that case where it's more where it's a more sophisticated conflict, it's definitely not I I think Himmler should have come down on the side of his emotions in that case. I I wouldn't hold it against him if if he had i wouldn't yeah i have a very so i have a very easy way to judge all three of these individuals which is to say all three of them were wrong about their principles right what's failing them right now is not that in some cases they listened to their emotions or in some cases they didn't it is that they have not acquired the right principles right um and so i think that that because that the conscious desire you know and this is one of the things he says Huck Finn didn't do as you say like he didn't have a full fleshed morality right he was just sort of going with these these beliefs that had been handed down to him um so uh, so I think that the responsibility is is to acquire the right kinds of beliefs about right and wrong but here's where the real substantive way in which I disagree um disagree is even too strong where I think that it's it's not a fully fleshed out view of emotion and I can't blame Bennett for this because again this was in 1974 and we've done a lot of work both philosophically and and empirically 
in in a way that we understand emotions a bit better. But he, this is uh, in his description of sympathy. He says, and this is in the second page of the article, as for sympathy, I use this term to cover every sort of fellow feeling as when one feels pity over someone's loneliness or horrified compassion over his pain or when one feels a shrinking reluctance to act in a way which will bring misfortune to someone else. These feelings must not be confused with moral judgments. My sympathy for someone in distress may lead me to help him or even think that I ought to help him, but in itself is not a judgment about what I ought to do, but just a feeling for him and his plight. We shall get some light of the difference between feelings and moral judgments when we consider Huckleberry Finn. So wait, like that's something Paul says a lot. Like you're, but he says if you just substitute empathy, right? Like you might feel empathy for the person, but that doesn't lead to the judgment that you should yeah. help them. Right. So, so the the this is where I I part ways about my view of what these emotions are. So, um, and again, I'm going to post this because I think it's really relevant. But the the First, the very first paper I wrote was about this, and and what bugged me was the characterizing of the emotional response itself as a as a dumb sort of non cognitive or at least non judgment um, sort of response, and and I think that's the wrong way to understand feelings like empathy, um, because I think that they are they are forms of judgments. They are right if you feel sympathy for um, somebody in their plight. I think that part of the mental state of feeling that is a judgment that what's going on is probably wrong. Now, it could be that you have a really, really dumb basic reaction. Like I do this to my students all the time. I just imagine that there's a knife and you see me slice myself open slowly. You're going to get a feeling, right? Yeah. That, that might be a dumb non, non-cognitive uh, feeling. But I think that when you get to the point where like David shouldn't do that to himself – that you've got a basic judgment or there. the thought of Jim getting caught by these people right. and returned exactly. to his owner is that is, seems really unfair, right? Uh, yeah. That's just fucked up. Seems really, that uh, seems horrible to me. Like, yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. And I actually think you're, you, you're being a little too easy on Bennett. I mean, people have had cognitivist views of emotions since Aristotle. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, right. So, but and you don't have to go like completely right. You don't have to go all the way and say like some philosophers of emotion do um, that that all emotions are chosen judgments that you know that then right. But no, but it is. I do think it has content, and that's why they're valuable as a signal. Right. I, I, I think, for instance, um, what people think when they see like the first time Tamler, you ever allow yourself to view a video of animals being slaughtered for right you it's not just that the pain bothers you because this is another thing that uh, paul bloom points out if it were just that it bothers you um you could easily just walk away right but we can't walk away from many of these emotions um because i think they bring with it a certain kind of judgment like i don't think this should be happening right right to what extent is this a terminal i always wonder this is this a terminological disagreement so the non-cognitivist will say so I have this visceral horror when I see animals in a factory farm, like pigs in a factory farm. That leads me to question my judgment that it's okay to have a policy that allows factory farms to exist. Or is there something about my horror that, that implicit in that is a judgment that it's bad? What's the substantive difference? Between, so I, yeah. I, I, re, I do really believe that there is a substantive difference here because if you just describe these as a, as a fairly sort of reflexive dumb system um, that's low level, then I think that it's harder to build a case that, that it's informative. I think the very reason some of these emotions become sort of important to the way in which we formulate our principles is that they carry with it a particular judgment that should be listened to, which is that some, I don't think this person should be suffering pain. Um, And it's only in cases like that, I think where it will have, where it will actually matter that you are feeling that emotion. But but think of the assumption. I mean, you're such a white male. You think I'm, that just because I'm Latin American uh, and I care about Native Americans. Well, you look white. <laughs> You're, you've been in whiteface for all these 90 minutes. 
you know that just because it's an emotion, if it doesn't have cognitive content, then it's then there's no reason to listen to it. I mean, there's an assumption that you're making there that I think some people wouldn't make, like maybe yeah. me as a so so no. So here, I think that there are many times where the emotions um, that we have are in fa- ought to be listened to because they are informative uh, about say your survival. So you feel fear at seeing a lion running at you. It could be the lowest level, right? Before you've even had time to think about it, you start running. And yeah, it ought to be listened to. Um, But I do think that an emotion like empathy, I I think that what I'm making is more of an empirical claim here that in fact these contain with them judgments that that in fact we wouldn't feel this empathy in many cases without having made that judgment. And that's that's why I think it, it, it naturally dissolves some of the distinction between an emotion and a judgment. Um, and it, it allows for something else, which is when you change the way that you actually see the world, I think it opens you up to feeling things that you might not have felt before. So there's two, there's, there's a couple of ways in which you can imagine, um, say, moral persuasion happening. One is that you see a slaughterhouse movie, right? And you actually, you feel such revulsion at what's going on and you realize that, that there, that this ought this probably shouldn't be going on that these, right. You might, you might just feel so sick to your stomach that you, you sort of allow yourself to start deliberating about whether or not this needs to happen. Yeah. And, and there you have this sort of this bottom up persuasion where now, now because you saw that film, you're thinking about eating meat more and more. Another way though, is that you could, um, and, and this happens to some people who study like the cognitive abilities of animals, right? You, you start realizing that animals are smart. You're reading, you know, suppose that you now work in a non sort of uh, non-human primate lab and you realize how, how smart chimpanzees are. And then you realize that now when you think about like makeup being tested, but you know, on these animals, you start feeling, you're not testing makeup on chimpanzees. (laughs) No, hopefully not. But, but I'll join one of those terrorists. (laughs) The psychologist, uh, Dan Batson has shown this. So if you, can categorize people, right? So now, now you have like this category of people that before you didn't used to think about. Now you think, oh, I think that these people are actually humans just like us and they deserve the rights. Now when you see them being uh, tortured or, you know, unjustly, un- unjustly abused or incarcerated or treated poorly, you will have more sympathy for them than you would have had before because yeah. your beliefs sort of opened are up informing this, the, yeah. the emotions. And so, and so I, I think that there is – so one of the things that I, I think is a substantive difference is that the, the amount of communication between the judgmental system and the emotional system is, is much higher so that we can actually say – so when I read this, I actually think Huck Finn is making a judgment that, pe- that Jim in particular should not be treated the way that he will be if he gets caught. But so by your definition, then he doesn't have to be thinking that that's a judgment that he's making no, because he yeah. doesn't. Uh, right. He, he thinks he's doing something almost selfish and or at the very least arbitrarily listening to his emotions. So he kind of blames himself in the same way that you blame him. But right. if you say no, Huck Finn, actually your sense of empathy is actually a judgment. You think that might change his mind? I mean, maybe like. I think I think so. I'm part of the problem, it, uh, and of course, Huck Finn is is a f- fictional character. But I actually have Huck Finn right here. <laughs> it's like no, it was wrong. <laughs> I've heard what you've been saying. Yeah, I think that that um, that because Huck Finn doesn't have his morality fully flushed out in the way that he sort of has ki- kind of not been reflective about either his principles or his emotions that that one of the problems is he's not quite sure why he's having this conflict and i think that that there might be a case where like if you or i were in the position to all of a sudden be exposed to something that made us feel an emotion we would really think about it and 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 say like i guess i just don't think that innocent animals should be killed for because it's tasty Let's grant you a at least partially cognitive understanding of the emotions. And just to be clear, what that means is that when we have an emotional reaction, you are also making 
a judgment of some kind or there is some sort of cognitive content and it's not just a feeling. Um, I I still don't know if I would disagree with his conclusion that our morality, as he defines it, needs to be checked by our emotions. Maybe it's just not that clean a distinction. In fact, it probably definitely isn't that clean a distinction. Like the two things are kind of intertwined from the from the get go. But if I do have this moral belief, say, about drones or something, drones are good for America, good for the world. And then I see, you know, like this village and I see a bunch of drones hovering over it and I see like terrified faces and and, and maybe I still haven't changed my mind that ultimately this might be a good policy for combating terrorism I might actually say, well, wait a minute. Why do I think that? And this feeling that I have actually should get me to be skeptical of those beliefs. Yeah. So so in that sense, I agree. I, I mean, I agree with his conclusion. I just think that it's I, I think I'm on better ground to say that we should listen to our emotions because they contain a judgment. So so let me distinguish, I think, b- between two two kinds of scenarios in which you could have an emotional reaction one is you are a learning how to be a surgeon and you are just you the thought of like cutting someone open is really just aversive to you there i think you say to yourself it doesn't matter this is i ha- i'm having this gut reaction but in that reaction is a mistake a mistaken kind of judgment the the sort of low level judgment that i know I have to set aside for in order to do good. And I think that when you have, if you're, if the example like yours of like all of a sudden seeing innocent people dying from a drone, I think that the only reason that we would take it seriously is because it, it, there is a, a little grain of a judgment there that says like, wait a second, maybe innocent people shouldn't be killed. And now it's really easy to kill them or, with these or drones. Terrorized, <clears throat> like, or terrorized. Or yeah. terrorized. Yeah. And now you say, well, what does this mean about what I believe about drones? Because you realize that there's been some judgment that might be mistaken. And, and I, I don't think that just a super low-level non-cognitive emotional reaction would give rise to that sort of conflict. So the fear analogy is interesting because you're right. There's two different kinds of fear. There's the fear that you have for some bug that you know isn't going to hurt you. Right. I mean, I, this is why I think actually that understanding emotions as in large part being open to input from appraisals in the environment is an is an important thing to understand so you you actually can you we can say the fear that i feel for heights is really fucking with my like ability to travel and give talks and i actually think that that um i ha- when i when i feel that fear i go to look for reasons for why and i see that all of them are just wrong and so so then you you have to you know try to work on why you're feeling the sphere and part of it but what's the difference like <clears throat> you you seem to be saying that if you thought that the fear was a mistaken judgment rather than just a feeling it would be easier to disregard or more more what you've been saying is if you think that your emotion contains a judgment then you're more likely to listen to it than if you think the emotion is just an emotion. But why is that? Like, because this is what leads me to wonder whether this is a terminological question. Because you know, you could also just respect the emotional response and then take that, take the information that you get from your emotional response into reevaluating your morale. Right. So one way to say what I'm saying is. That realizing that a judgment is being made at some level when you're feeling an emotion can lead you to question whether that judgment is appropriate or not. And sometimes feeling that emotion is a great signal that you should be listening, that you actually believe something that you didn't realize you believed. Right. And so, um, so that, and I think this is what emotions do is they narrow your focus. They make you pay attention to something very specific in the environment that might be bad that's going on. And and sometimes when you realize that the reason that you have this emotion is because let's take an example of walking down the street late at night and a young black man in a hoodie is walking down the other side. Yeah. You might actually 
all of a sudden realize that you're like clutching your your purse, yeah. you know, tight more tightly. And that and that you're having sort of a fear response. And that what does that tell you? That tells you, oh shit. And we've probably many of us have had this experience where you're like I remember Mazri Banaji telling me this that you know, having this inclination to lock her door when yeah. a, a young black man was walking by and then saying like, oh fuck, man, that I'm kind of like appraising this as a dangerous environment. Why? Because he's black. Like it wouldn't have happened with, I think that, that we, sometimes we just don't, we don't know. We didn't realize that we had this belief. Yeah. Right. And it might be a really low level belief and you might even disagree. But there is a belief there, but there is a belief belief that's that's a more dangerous person that, that has a greater chance of car, even though I don't think carjackings happen very much anymore, (laughs) but yeah, why is that? I don't car know. stereo car stereos used to get stolen all the time all too. The time, like, yeah. I don't know anybody. All that's gone. Yeah. I don't know why. And so it seems less it seems less controversial a claim to say that yeah. we ought to listen to emotions when you I think when you at least have that view of emotions. Although in those cases, right, you are making a judgment. Sometimes your judgment can be accurate and sometimes it's not, right? You know, it's a uh, yeah. The so this is actually like a a troubling question. Let's say that the um, the chances are slightly higher that a young black man is a criminal. Yeah. Now, c- should you cross the street? And I think that we have to like think hard about some of the our reactions when we say. So in Mazarin's case, she said, "You know, the harm that I'm doing to young black men by locking the door when they walk by is is." outweighed by any like bump in you know the accuracy of my base rates about who's gonna like break into my car right so so i think that that this not an easy answer to gives like a bayesian response to it well yeah i mean she says that (laughs) she well she actually believes that it's a moral question what to do there she doesn't in print before she said that it's that being bayesian about race is irrational but i think that she's not I, I don't. I don't think that's what she meant. She to doesn't say. really I believe think, it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's, you know, she's not, like Huck. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, I mean, let's to take it away from race. I mean, just you know, you're a young woman and you're walking down down the street, and you just met. It is just undoubtedly true that a man is more likely to rape you than a woman. Yeah. So a man is walking down the street late at night. Should you cross the street in this case, because you're not doing anyone any harm. And let's suppose that it's like literally like 0.1% more likely that this guy is going to rape you than if it were a woman. (laughs) You're not threatening at all. And you cross the street. Well, I don't think she would be doing you any harm um, by crossing the street. You might not even think that that's why she crossed the street. And then I say, let's say the 0.1% is might be if if the 0.1% is of getting like brutally raped, then go for it. You know, but I don't know. I think that there's no easy answer as to like what what one ought to do in those cases. I mean, I think there's something to be said for just like not react, like setting aside the race thing or the the gender thing. Just like I have a principled stand of not altering my behavior for uh, irrational risks. There's not really a risk. I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to train myself to (laughs) go about my business in a normal way. And not succumb to every irrational fear that that confronts me. Well, yeah. So I, I, what I was saying there, I guess, which is not that relevant to this discussion, is that whether or not it's irrational sort of depends on what the situation is. Because if you accept like a 5% increase in risk. Um, but it depends what the risk is, right? Even if it's a 5% increase in risk. If it's but if there's just- absolutely zero cost and the risk is trivial, then I, I don't think it's irrational to cross the street. Yeah, it is. Mm. It's a non-virtuous. I know that's a, that's a category that you reject. Um, it, it's all about the act. It's all about determining the most rational action. Actually, as a virtue theorist, you should look to me to to say to see what is right, to understand what is right, because I am I am known. You are the great souled man. Many of my best mothers have told me that I am a virtuous young man. Yeah, young is the key there. I mean, all right. So, so can we can we talk about Edwards? Like, I don't get why he's in here. I do. Yeah, let's talk about Ed, Edwards. Uh, I I think he's in there because you needed an example of somebody who has bad morality on both ends. But and, like, what what purpose does it serve? Rather, like, I would think what should be in here to make it more complex is somebody who had good morality but bad emotions. Right? Their emotions were leading us astray, leading them astray. He almost doesn't think that that. I guess maybe this leads to his conclusion that our sympathy should be primary right um 
That's yeah, and that's that's why I think that's there because he wants to set the stage for sympathy, specifically the that set of emotions that are other regarding that those actually ought to always be listened to. Right. And so for him, the worst case scenario is just that they're absent, not that they're actually leading the wrong way. Right. And you can take a virtue, you know, you can sort of take a virtue approach. Like it could be that somebody like Edwards never had the right sympathy to begin with, or it could be that he just hardened his himself so much over time that he stopped listening to sympathy and then just stopped having it. Well, I think either way it sort of works for his argument. This is why if, if it's the latter, then this is why... You shouldn't do that, right? Exactly, right. Yeah, you right. shouldn't, because that's kind of what. It, but that's sort of what it, Himmler did, although would not as successfully. I think exactly. Yeah, he's, he's, saying, like failed, yeah, he's like he's a failed. Yeah, he's like a failed. Like yeah, Bennett. Like the way he. I hope this is less than the whole truth. His other main point about why the saints will rejoice to see the torments of the damned is that it is right that they should do so. And then he quotes him again and says, "The implication that of course one can adjust one's feelings of pity so that they conform to the dictates of some authority doesn't this suggest that ordinary human sympathies played only a small part in Edwards's life?" And maybe so, that's yeah. true. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. He's a philosopher, you know. Like we're not we're not notoriously high on the <laughs> scale of ordinary um, human sympathy. I thought you guys were known for opening your heart to all. I I want to for those who who haven't read this or who are not going to read this. Um, there's just some great quotes from from Edward's from Edward's sermons. Um, so he says, natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath and hell. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them. He's not, it's not even just that, that he believes he's like, oh, you know. Uh, it sucks for you. You're going to go to hell. He's like taking delight in the torture of, of in the thought of eternal torment. This and is what, so the, here's a couple <laughs> other quotes. This is great, actually. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome <laughs> insect over the fire. Who does that? Abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. He is of purer yeah. eyes than to bear than you have. And it's like, just as you would hold a little kitten over like a fire or put like a frog <laughs> in a microwave, like as if like we all do that. Like totally. that's just an you obvious know, you know like, metaphor. You like torture animals? Like that's what God's doing. But then um, the, the seeing of the calamity of others tends to heighten the sense of our own enjoyments. When the saints in glory, therefore, shall see the doleful state of the damned, how this will heighten their sense of of the blessedness of their own state. I mean, it sounds just like such an ass. And like, I mean, he's the one who made hellfire and brimstone like hot in the streets, like for pastors. Uh, you know, it was like this sort of delight and thing. When they see how miserable others of their fellow creatures are, when they see the smoke of their torment <laughs> and hear their dolorous shrieks and cries and consider that in the meantime, they in the meantime are in the most blissful state, then surely be in it to eternity how they will rejoice. I mean, right. Like, it's like a contrast effect. Like, look, we have to torture people so that you realize how wonderful your life is. Like, so, um, but he's uh, into I, like he's described like the freaks of their yeah. torment. Yeah. You just wonder what was in his basement, you know? Exactly. It's like, okay, you know, punishment is fine, but like, Let's just be reasonable. Suppose you even had 80 years of, yeah. like, being an ass here. Infinity of torture is, like, it seems a, a little bit um, sort of off in terms of the calibration of... But, I mean, right? this was, like, I use this Jonathan Edwards, actually, as an example in my book. If you start from the point that God has to be just, and this is what you think happens, and those two things are right. know, at the center of your web of belief then this is what the weirdos of your faith are going to come up with. But it, Luther and Calvin came up with similar things. They just didn't seem to revel in it as much. Those two things are God is just and sinners go to hell through no fault of their own. Like, that's just what they believe. You, yeah, you need a third belief in there to, to reconcile. So this is the way that, that Edwards says. He says, um, this is quoting Bennett, paraphrasing him. He says, he argues that a punishment should be exactly as bad as the crime being punished. Okay, that makes sense. So how do you get infinity? <laughs> well, God is infinitely excellent. So any crime against him is infinitely bad. Right. Just That's like, wait, like wait a second. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so it's funny like that's just an example of yeah you see this in plato like the republic i mean depending on how you read the republic but, but there's some good arguments and then there's some really really bad arguments that <laughs> you think there's no way that a person of that intelligence could have put forth and just had the interlocutors be like oh yeah well that's nobody could doubt that no way the, ar- the like, argument from dangling a spider <laughs> very well very well yeah nicely done sir <laughs> i think sometimes you might think you're so convinced by your conclusion that maybe you're not gonna you lose your critical faculty which plato is probably more complicated you know he's, he's as much an artist as a philosopher but the but i think that is how it works like you see this in regular philosophy even in the free will debate which jonathan edwards himself was a part of and I'm sure I've done this too. Like you're so convinced by your conclusion that you'll just allow an argument to get out of you that <laughs> just wouldn't hold critical scrutiny yeah. under normal circumstances. And, and you know what we say? Yeah. Um, we say, well, look, man, if you can't ha- handle the sort of counterintuitive conclusions, you know, man, that's just your weakness. You right. can't take it. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. The stronger ones of us humans can can handle these uncomfortable truths. God is infinitely good. The Himmlers among us. <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note. One last thing about this. I love this is a great example of using fiction to do yes, interesting philosophy absolutely. And, and art. You know, and it's like like we said, Huck Finn didn't exist or at least not exactly Huck Finn. And nonetheless, we get a real glimpse into the psychology of somebody by reading the way that Twain wrote about him. I think, I think this is the kind of paper that I wish we saw more of. Um, it's clear. It's easy. It's accessible. And it, it is short. Uh, and it, yes, yeah, short. And it's well written. And it uses it uses fiction and history rather than fanciful thought experiments. And, yeah. Yeah, who cares that he didn't flesh out fully his view of sympathy? That's right. a criticism of mine in in some sense because I think, you know, that's what we're talking about, but it's not really a criticism of this paper. It would have been a shittier paper had he like given us three pages about the interaction between emotion and reason, right? right? Like which like, you would have to do now and that you it's almost totally like totally would. This is part this is a structural problem with the profession. It's to write this now, you couldn't this would never get public. Hey, you know, you didn't yeah. cite John Haidt, you know, John <laughs> <laughs> but even like you would just have to go into the whole cognitivist and non-cognitivist debate, which you could maybe do uh, yeah. well and somewhat succinctly. But yeah, I I can't say that I missed any sentence. Like, suppose you have a thought T yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at time <laughs> time yeah. one. The thought at time two. <laughs> changes but how did it change because of emotion e1 shout out um, to my grad student now headed to unc phd program pavel i don't know he has some eastern european last name but for trying to defend that passage by ben bradley over email i have officially disowned him but <laughs> look he could be right it's just that that he lost our attention <laughs> right that should be more of a demand it's it's not so much that he was wrong it's it, that it just was yeah. all right well see you next time we might do for, force majeure oh yeah next talk time. about cowardice with, with yoel possibly so cowardice next time i'm very bad with Just a very bad wizard.